Welcome back, everybody, to Then There Were Two, a History of the World series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually by Lucas Mitzel, as always. And Lucas, by itself, the official 100th edition of the World Series is not the most memorable, not the most competitive. But given what happens before this World Series, it feels very anticlimactic. And given all of the storylines here, too, like I think that kind of has this series a lot higher in memory than if you changed one or potentially both of the participants of this one. But you're right, like the story of this one begins and ends with the series that preceded it. So the American League Championship Series, like the season before, pitted the hated Yankees and the hated Red Sox from New York and Boston, respectively. And the year before was a memorable seven-game classic that ended with Aaron Boone walking off the Red Sox. And this year, it looks like it's going to be a clean sweep of the Red Sox after the Yankees win three straight and that three-game stretch culminates in a 19-8 victory at Fenway Park. So everybody's thinking in their right mind that this is over because no team has ever come back from three games down. And then the bottom of the ninth of Game 4 happens, and it all goes downhill for the Bronx Bombers from there. I do want to take a step back just for a moment. So you mentioned that 19-8 Yankee victory. If I had a nickel for every time the Yankees beat the Red Sox in a game by a score of 19 to 8, I'd have two nickels, which isn't a lot, but it's weird that it's happened twice. The other one was September 26th of 2008, and that was a game that relegated the Red Sox to a wild card spot, interestingly enough. And I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole this afternoon as I was looking through this because I saw 19 to 8, and I went, that's a football score. And so I went and I looked up on uh, NFL Scoregami that has a record of every NFL score ever. And 19 to 8 has happened in two NFL games. It happened once a few months prior to when we were recording this when the Kansas City Chiefs beat the Denver Broncos 19 to 8. The only other time was on October 12th, 1927 when the Buffalo Bison fell by that 19 to 8 score to get this, the New York Yankees. As opposed to the New York baseball Yankees. Indeed. I just, the the whole thing, especially given that it was the 1927 football Yankees, just felt kind of eerie to me. But anyway, let's get back here to this fateful bottom of the ninth of Game 4 of the ALCS. And it is primarily known for one play, the steal. It is known for the steal. It is set up by Mario Rivera walking Kevin Millar. And I'm totally not remembering this because of the ending of Fever Pitch. I'm lying. I totally remember it for that reason. Millar is pinch run for by Dave Roberts. And Roberts steals second base to jumpstart a rally that culminates with Bill Miller driving him in with an RBI single. And then David Ortiz in extra innings walks it off with a home run. Joe Buck says, we'll see you later tonight. He walks him off again the next night. And then games six and seven take place in New York City. Kurt Schilling with the first of two Bloody Sock performances shuts down the Yankees. And game seven is over early because I remember watching this game live. Johnny Damon's Grand Slam. It is all over for the Yankees at that point as they become, for all historical purposes, the biggest chokers in postseason baseball history 
and ironically against the team that you would mostly expect this from. But instead, they're the ones who are inflicting the damage on the team that has given them the most pain over the years. And as a result, the Red Sox are back in the World Series for the first time in 18 years. And then we get a little bit of a montage in the World Series film following the lead up and a very extensive one at that it goes into a lot of detail about that ALCS and the 3-0 deficit that they were able to overcome and the massive hits from Big Poppy and we get a little bit into the background of the Pedro Martinez press conference comment of calling the Yankees his daddy followed by the Yankee Stadium crowd chanting, who's your daddy at him, prior to, I believe it was game two of the ALCS. And then Martinez then follows that up uh, with a who's your poppy joke in reference to David Ortiz with his two walk-off hits that resulted in him winning ALCS MVP. So, you know, you look at this Red Sox squad that was able to make it. There's a handful of guys that have been a part of this roster before. Ortiz was on the Red Sox the prior year, but he hit 301, 41 home runs. Manny Ramirez doing Manny Ramirez things, 308 with 43 home runs. Ortiz and Ramirez driving in a combined 269 runs between the two of them, which is just staggering. You have a great table setter in Johnny Damon who hit 304, 20 home runs, stole a team high 19 bases, and then good complimentary pieces in guys like catcher Jason Veritek who hit 296 with 18 homers, stealing 10 bases. One of the big interesting moves that was made during the season, though, was the trade of fan favorite shortstop Nomar Garciaparra to my Cubs. And I remember being kind of blown away by that trade. I was at Disney World at the time and watched numerous highlights on ESPN News of his uh, go-ahead RBI hit in his first game as a Cub at Wrigley Field. But the whole trade of Nomar turns this into a fantastic Ewing Theory candidate. And that is because Garcia Parra, that is back Orlando Cabrera and Doug Mankiewicz, a 14 deal to be exact. And it was just what the Red Sox needed as it turned out. They started the season 15 and 6, then they go 41 and 40 over the next three months. They go 21 7 after the trade deadline in August, then they finish 21 11 for 98 wins and the wild card spot, only three games behind the AL East winning Yankees. By the way, I should mention real quickly Manny Ramirez, incredible season. He leads the American League with 43 home runs, as well as slugging percentage 613 and a 1,009 OPS. And David Ortiz is not far behind with 41 home runs. That actually ties for second in the American League with Paul Canerco, who will play a very important role in the future. Also speaking of the future, that Who's Your Daddy chant with Pedro Martinez of the Yankees will come up in another future episode, which we'll definitely have to mention when the time comes. But the Red Sox took care of the Angels in short order in the ALDS, and then we just went over that epic ALCS that they came back to win. And the other thing that the Red Sox were known for, and the World Series film narrated by Dennis Leary, by the way, made this very clear, this was a very hairy team. Because we remember Johnny Damon and his Jesus-like look with the beard and the hair M.A. Ramirez growing his hair out. Pedro Martinez growing his hair out. Martinez, by the way, along with Derek Lowe, combined for 30 wins and one out shy of 400 innings, both during free agent seasons. 
And I would say that all that hair contributed to the legacy that this particular Red Sox team has had and continues to have in New England. I think that is a very fair point to make. Uh, I mean, you could probably throw the uh, hairstyle of one Bronson Arroyo in there as well. And then there's one other piece that we haven't touched on yet that was a huge offseason acquisition for this Red Sox team. They needed a pitcher to help get them past the hump that was the New York Yankees. And so they got one of your favorite people in all of baseball and a guy who we have mentioned on a couple of previous episodes, Kurt Schilling. That's right. Kurt Schilling was acquired via free agency during the offseason. At age 37, has a fantastic year, 21 wins and a 3.26 ERA. That leads the team. Pedro Martinez would go on between the regular season and the playoffs to throw 244 innings. Schilling would have a similar number by season's end. And I was also happy that Keith Folk, my favorite White Sox closer up to that point, was saving games for the Red Sox. He had 32 saves that year. Unfortunately, the White Sox gave him up for Billy Koch in what turned out to be a rotten trade with the A's. But in any event, Folk is here, and he is part of a very veteran-related bullpen Alan Embry, another former White Sox reliever, is there. Mike Timlin, who was on the 92 Blue Jays, got the last out of that World Series, is a setup man as well. So I know quite a few guys on this team, and so do you. Mark Bellhor and Bill Miller were former Cubs. Indeed, yeah, I remember both of them getting uh, some trips on the north side of Chicago in the uh, early 2000s and then making an appearance there. So you have all of that of guys that we knew and rooted for in years prior playing for a team that has waited a very long time to be back here in this position. And so we've had all of this set up here so far. And I feel like all of this completely overshadows the fact that the NLCS was an absolute banger as well. That's right. The Cardinals and the Astros had one of the best LCS battles that you've ever seen. The Astros had their killer bees line up with Craig Biggio, Jeff Bagwell, Carlos Beltran, and Lance Berkman. But in the end, they were no match for the National League champion St. Louis Cardinals. who won 105 games that year. And they had their own big acquisition late in this season when they acquired Larry Walker from the Rockies. And he was a great addition to them. You could argue that put them over the top. And you have some great power with Albert Pujols and Jim Edmonds. You have a gold glover and Scott Rowland. And the rotation is actually missing its top gun because Chris Carpenter will miss the playoffs with a nerve. And this turns out to be a very big thing on the scouting report for the Red Sox because before game one of the World Series, a source said with Carpenter out there, no one with a plus pitch, we crushed that kind of pitching. And we'll get more into that later on. But without that ace that we talked about, I would say that the Cardinals are going to have a tough time dealing with all these power hitters in this Red Sox lineup. Not that the Cardinals don't have power hitters on their own, But considering the fact that the Red Sox have home field advantage, and they would have this year even if the American League didn't win the All-Star game that year under the old format, alternating every year, it's still a tough order for the Cardinals, especially given even though they won their own epic series, you can't compare the high the Red Sox nation is feeling from doing what their team just did to the Yankees. 
Absolutely. And kind of going back to that point, so the starting pitchers that will appear in this series for the Cardinals started 126 of the 162 games during the 2004 regular season. The best numbers of those guys would probably be future Cub, Jason Marquis, who went 15-7, and seven, posted a 371 earned run average, and struck out 138. That was a high among pitchers who will appear in this series for the Cardinals. Uh, Matt Morris went 15 and 10 with a 4.72 earned run average. Woody Williams 11 and 8 with a 4.18, and Jeff Supon 16 and 9 with a 4.16. So I mean, solid pieces, but a lot of high ERAs and definitely some potential for those Red Sox bats to do some damage. So let us get into this first game. The late great Tim Wakefield starts Game One. He is the first knuckleballer to start a World Series game since Gene Bearden did it for Cleveland in Game 3 of the 1948 series. But Larry Walker doubles with one out in the first, so people are starting to wonder maybe there's something going on with power against knucklers, but he is stranded. Then Johnny Damon doubles to lead off the first inning. Orlando Cabrera, who was acquired in that Garcia Parr trade, was hit by a pitch. And David Ortiz, as David Ortiz thinks he hits a three-run homer down the right field line later in the inning. Then Kevin Millar doubles off of the Green Monster and later scores on a Miller RBI single. And then Jim Edmonds has a bunt single to lead off the second. He later scores on Mike Matheny's sack fly. Then Walker hits a solo home run to right with one out in the third inning. But then the Red Sox go ahead and bat around in the third inning. They score three runs on three hits, but that is enough for Woody Williams after two and a third innings. Dan Herring comes in to relieve him. Tim Wakefield walks the bases well in the fourth inning. Two-run score on a Matheny sack fly and Aaron's throw by Millar. And a third-run scores on a Sotoguchi RBI ground out to third. Then Edgar Renteria walks. So Wakefield is out after three and two-thirds innings. Branson Royal comes in for him. This is pretty similar, I would say, to Game 2 of the 2002 World Series, in which both pitchers who started the game did not last long. Indeed, and I wonder if that uh, throwing error is going to be a trend for this game. Stay tuned. Sotoguchi singles back to Arroyo with two outs in the sixth inning, then moves to second on Aaron's throw from Arroyo. Then Renteria and Walker foul with back-to-back RBI doubles to tie the game. And then in the seventh inning, we have a new pitcher for the Cardinals, Kiko Calero. And uh, he walks Bellhorn and Cabrera. Ramirez scores Bellhorn on an RBI single. And then after Ray King relieves Calero, Ortiz scores Cabrera on an RBI single. Then the top of the eighth inning, Matheny singles with one out. Embry relieves Timlin. Jason Marquis, of all people, pinch runs for Matheny. Roger Daniel singles, so Keith Falk comes in for Timlin. And then things really start to get crazy because Renteria singles. Marquis scores after May Ramirez overruns the ball in left field. And if that's not enough, Larry Walker then hits a fly ball towards Ramirez, and Ramirez misses it, so Daniel scores to tie the game. And at this point... First of all, Manny being Manny is not this, and that was a very common saying at this particular point in baseball history. But as the World Series film points out, at this point, people are starting to wonder in the stands and all over Red Sox Nation, is this when the curse of the Bambino is going to hit us this time? Was that Yankee series just a big tease? 
Well, you have that, and then the film also does a good job of pointing out this is the third meeting in the World Series between the Red Sox and the Cardinals. And we remember back in 1946, you had Enos Slaughter's Mad Dash in Game 7 that won that series. They met again in 1967, another seven-game classic, and the Red Sox just could not solve Bob Gibson. Then again, not many people could. But yeah, I mean, you have to have all of these thoughts between the Curse of the Bambino and the history against the Cardinals in the World Series. Like, that has to be playing at least a little bit of a role. And of course, Johnny Pesky was the Red Sox outfielder who had the ball when Slaughter made his mad dash. And Pesky is actually shown quite a bit on the World Series film. We'll get more into him as we go on in this episode. Fortunately, the Red Sox were able to escape that inning with the game tied. And then Jason Veritek, who also is a pending free agent, he reaches on Edgar Renteria error at short. We've mentioned Renteria quite a bit on this podcast already, including earlier in this episode. That happens with one outs in the eighth inning. He promptly scores when Mark Bellhorn hits a two-run homer off of Pesky's pole in right field. That is his third home run in as many games. Keith Falk pitches a scoreless ninth inning for the win. So we have an exciting start to this World Series. It's an 11-9 final. The Red Sox are victorious. 20 runs in Game 1 is the most of a World Series opener. The previous record was 18-1932 in the Yankees sweep over the Cubs. Good, at least the Cubs get some notoriety out of the record books. But a nice job by the Red Sox there, especially considering given everything that did go wrong, the fact that they were still able to pull it out has to have provided a little bit of a sense of relief especially for that fan base that had to have been pretty tortured there for part of that game one. So we go to game two. Kurt Schilling, who signed for $25.5 million, also had a vesting option for 30 or $13 million in his contract. He admits he woke up at 7 o'clock in the morning and could not even walk. And he ended up having to have sutures reinserted to stabilize the tendon in his right ankle and that inevitably means that he is going to have another start in which his sock is bloody. And people are probably starting to wonder, okay, what's going to happen this time around? He lucked out the first time. Will he luck out again? Or is it going to be disastrous this time around? Yeah, well, I mean, he gets through that first inning, runs into a little bit of trouble, gives up a uh, two-out double to Albert Pujols, but induces a line-out to third from Scott Rowland gets out of the inning and then in the bottom half after Cardinals starter Matt Morris induces a pair of ground outs to start the inning he then proceeds to walk both Ramirez and Ortiz which probably not the smartest idea especially when Jason Veritek gets one into triple alley just to the left of center at Fenway. Triple alley is of course that triangle in dead center at Fenway Park who holds doubles to lead off the fourth inning. He reaches third on a rolling flyout. He scores on a Miller two-out error on a Reggie Sanders grounder to third. Then Millar is hit by a pitch with one out in the fourth. He moves to third on a Miller double and both score on a Bellhorn RBI double. And at that point, Kurt Schilling has all the support that he's going to need. There's a sign that stands that reads Dr. Bill Morgan for MVP. That, of course, is the doctor who put the sutures into the ankle of Schilling beforehand. Schilling ends up giving up no earned runs, one walk and four hits over six innings. And to make it even crazier, Pujols ends up getting all three Cardinals hits out of 21 at-bats from the Cardinals' one through six hitters. 
Miller and Bellhorn do make back-to-back errors in the sixth inning. That makes the Red Sox the first team to commit eight errors in the first two series games, but no runs scored. Trotz Nixon singles to lead off the sixth inning. He moves to third at Damon two-out single. Both score an RBI single by Cabrera, who extends his hitting streak to nine. The Red Sox score all their runs with two outs. Keith Falk finishes the game by retiring the last four hitters. And Kurt Schilling becomes the first World Series winner with three different teams. He won with the Phillies in 93. He won with the Diamondbacks in 2001. And again, these are games, not necessarily series. He is a World Series winner in this game, 6-2, to two, the final score. A little bit of a deeper dive on that Schilling nugget here. You mentioned he's the first pitcher to ever win a World Series game with three different teams. Schilling also became the fifth pitcher to win a World Series game for both leagues. The prior four to do so, Burt Blylevin won games for the 87 Twins and 79 Pirates, Tommy John for the 81 Yankees and 77 and 78 Dodgers, Earl Hershiser won for the 1988 Dodgers as well as 95 and 97 Cleveland. And then you have to go way, way back. Johnny Coombs won for the Philadelphia A's in 1910 and for Brooklyn in 1916. So moving on to Game 3 in St. Louis, rain falls beforehand, but it stops before game time. Manny Ramirez extends his playoff hit streak to 16 with his fourth home run off of Jeff Supan in his past six meetings with him. This one is a solo shot to left with two outs in the first on a 2-2 count. The Cardinals load the bases with one out in the first inning. But Edmonds flies out to left, and Walker is thrown out by Ramirez on a would-be sack fly to left. Ramirez ends up becoming the first player in a World Series game to have a home run and outfield assist in the same inning since Lenny Dykstra did it in Game 4 of the 93 series. Supan singles, and Renteria doubles to lead off the third inning, but Supan stops on the base paths on a Walker ground out to second and is thrown out trying to get back to third. And Jeff Supan is not known for his base running and what pitcher is really, but he does not help his team, especially in that moment. And Ramirez drives in another run over the course of this game. Pedro Martinez strikes out six over seven shutout innings of three hit, two walk ball, and 98 pitches. He retires the last 14 hitters faced. The Red Sox win this one four to one. Supan, undoubtedly, though, is the player a lot of Cardinals fans probably remember, not just for this game, but for this series. And I hate to say, Lucas, but I'm wondering if it was moments like this, albeit it's many years later, that made people think, yo, what? maybe we should have the universal DH. I mean, this would probably be a game that a lot of pro DH people would point to as a See, this is why we need it. Now, you know, I am still in the hitting pitchers forever camp because it's fun. But I understand coming from the other side, if you add a little bit more offense to it. And on the plus side, too, it makes my uh, scorecards a lot cleaner when you don't have to worry about countless uh, pinch hitters and pitcher replacements. Moving on to game four, Derek Lowe gets the start. He has already won the clinchers for the ALDS and ALCS. By winning this game, he would become the first pitcher ever to win three clinching games in the playoffs. Now, granted, the three-round playoff format is not even a decade old at this point, but it's still worth noticing. And he has to feel pretty confident, too, I would say, because he had the second-highest run support per nine innings this year at 7.29. 
And the Red Sox continued their trend of taking the lead in the first inning in this series when Johnny Damon leads it off with a home run to right center. That's the first leadoff home run in a World Series game since Derek Jeter did so in Game 4 of the 2000 series. The last Red Sox player to do was Patsy Doherty in Game 2 of the very first World Series back in 1903. Of course, back then they were the Boston Americans. And it was not even the World Series as we knew it because John Brush decided to be a dick and not allow a series in 1904. Although he ironically would end up saving the World Series and establishing it as we know it almost immediately after that. And then Tony Womack singles to lay off the bottom of the first inning, but Derek Lowe retires the next three batters. In the third inning with one out, Ramirez singles. That ties his playoff record hitting streak of 17. And he moves to third on Ortiz double, but is thrown out trying to score on a Veritek ground ball to first. Then Miller walks to load the bases. Ortiz and Veritek then score on an RBI double off the wall in right center by Trotz Nixon on a 3-0 count. Derek Lowe pitches seven shutout innings, strikes out four, walks one on three hits. At one point, he retires 12 in a row. Keith Folk is on the mound to close it out for the Red Sox. Pujols gets on with the leadoff single in the ninth inning. Scott Rowland is one of the Bears he retires. And Scott Rowland, a very bad series for him. He ends up going 0 for 15 in the series from the cleanup spot, which is not a winning formula if you want to win a World Series. But ultimately, people only remember Edgar Renteria grounding right back to Keith Folk and tossing it to Doug Mankiewicz for the final out and the Red Sox's first World Series championship in 86 years. Red Sox Nation rejoices. I said this in our 1955 episode, and I will bring this up again in a few weeks' time because it will be relevant again then. But it's it's especially fitting for this Red Sox team because we've talked about it a little bit. We touched on 46 and the Slaughter's Man Dash and the seven-game heartbreak in 67. We also then have to touch on 75 where you have the waving the ball fair in game six only to go on to lose to the Big Red Machine in game seven on your home field. Plus everything that happened in 1986, we talked about the Johnny Pesky thing. You know, we didn't talk yet about Bill Buckner and letting the ground ball go through in game six against the Mets, which would be followed up with a Mets game seven victory. And you have all of this history and all of this heartbreak and failure and disappointment that 99 times out of 100 is what ends up being the case for Red Sox fans. But 2004 is that 100th time. And by God, does that make it all worth it? And we have to mention a lot of things as the postscript for this World Series. It was the 16th sweep in World Series history and the 11th by an American League team. The Red Sox joined the 63 Dodgers, the 66 Orioles, and the 89 A's to never trail in the World Series. Terry Francona is the third first-year manager to win the World Series in the past four years, joining Bob Brenly and Jack McKeon. David Ortiz ties the single postseason record with 19 RBIs, but in the end, it is Manny Ramirez taking home the World Series MVP hardware with a 1,088 OPS and four RBIs. Yeah, I think you could potentially make an argument as well for somebody like Bill Miller, who slashed 429, 556, 571, and had an 1127 OPS. 
Now, the difference there potentially being that Miller only drove in two runs versus Ramirez four, and you know Ramirez had the big home run. He had the postseason game hitting streak. You look at some of the pitching numbers. I mean, Keith Folk finished all four of the wins for the Red Sox in this series. You had Pedro Martinez with a seven innings of shutout ball. Derek Lowe, same thing. Kurt Schilling allowing no earned runs over six in his start. The Red Sox pitchers posted a 250 team ERA over the course of the series. I mean, there's definitely candidates, but I feel like Manny Ramirez is probably the right call. Uh, the slash line that he had was 412, 500, 588. And I'm just going to say this now because it's the only episode in which I can say it. It really makes me feel dirty that in the only series that Tim Wakefield and Kurt Schilling both pitched, Schilling had the much better start given that Schilling, against the Wakefield family's wishes, outed Wakefield's condition in his final days a few months ago. So, again, screw you, Kurt Schilling, forever, for a lot of reasons, but especially that one. Yeah, entirely fair. So as we go ahead and look at the other side, we mentioned just how much of a struggle Cardinals hitters were having. As a team, St. Louis hit just 190 over the course of the four-game series. They struck out 32 times as a team. And, you know, we didn't talk a ton about regular season numbers for the Cardinals. But, you know, looking at their main players, I mean, Larry Walker, who was a huge pickup for them, did what he needed to do. He hit 357 for the series, hit both of the Cardinals' home runs over the course of the four-game set. Albert Pujols acquitted himself fairly well in his first World Series appearance, hit 333, but didn't really do any damage of significance in the series. Edgar Renteria, despite making the final out, also hit 333. But you look at some of the other numbers here. Um, Jim Edmonds, who was second on the Cardinals in home runs with 42, hit just 1 for 15 in the series. We mentioned the 0 for by Scott Rowland. Uh, another guy who has appeared in prior World Series, Reggie Sanders, went 0 for 9 over the course of four games. Tony Womack hit just 182 as a table setter, and just they didn't have enough offense to get it done. Well, don't feel too bad for the Cardinals. They will be back nope. in a not-too-distant World Series with this core, so just stay tuned for that. But for the rest of this episode, we have to focus on the celebration that followed Theo Epstein, the architect of this Red Sox team, all 30 years old at this point, said, I guess a lot of people can die happy now. And Massachusetts Governor Mitch Romney is among those featured in the celebration highlights of the World Series film. And let me just say that the World Series film and other films like it really take the time to let it soak in that this means a hell of a lot to a lot of people who have waited such a long time to celebrate a World Series victory. And the curse of the Bambino can be put to rest. And I think Pedro Martinez said it best. I wouldn't trade one World Series ring in Boston for three anywhere else. So many of these guys had such a great attitude, too. They were happy to win it for themselves, but for their teammates and also mentioning all of the Red Sox legends that came before them. And one of the guys that we've mentioned a couple times already, Johnny Pesky, who, you know, we keep mentioning the whole Mad Dash thing. Pesky was in the Red Sox clubhouse for game four and Kevin Millar, Tim Wakefield, Kurt Schilling and others immediately on going into the clubhouse went right to him. 
and Pesky, understandably, would end up with a World Series ring because he, whether it was his intention or not, and it wasn't his intention, I would say, he represented all of the past Red Sox greats more than anybody who did not get to salivate in a World Series championship victory. I'm sure he was especially thinking about his teammate Ted Williams, who passed away only a couple of years before this. And he was probably the face of a long list of people, not just legends of the Red Sox, but people all over Red Sox nation who have waited such a long time for this. Of course, there was still some humor involved with them. Manny Ramirez had a parade sign saying Jeter's playing golf today. This is better. And that's another case of Manny being Manny. And while there is some humor involved with it, we see so many testimonials from fans outside Fenway Park by the celebration that takes place in Boston, saying how much it means to them. We see a father and son, and the son saying, I am glad my father got to experience this. And we see a father with young kids saying, I just hope that I'm not scarring them in the events that they do lose. And you really see a lot of people just soaking it all in, realizing that this is something that we never thought we would see. And now that's happening, we don't really know how to feel. And as one fan put it in the HBO documentary, Curse of the Bambino, and this is similar to something you've said over and over again on this podcast, Lucas. He said, if it was a movie, it would be a bad movie because people would say that could never happen. This is ridiculous. Yeah, I say it time and time again, the impossible happens with regularity. And we go back again to that ALCS. The Red Sox are coming off of getting absolutely shellacked in their home ballpark and are facing elimination. Like, everyone's written them off as they're done, it's over. And then they're not. They go on the miracle run to end all miracle runs, and it continues all the way through. They climb the mountaintop. That Curse of the Bambino documentary takes some time to focus on cemetery sites where a lot of people have decorated the graves of their loved ones with Red Sox paraphernalia. There was this one older woman who was saying to her late father that they finally did it. And of course, that is just the beginning. And let me just say right now, if anybody ever tries to tell you that baseball is just a game, there is no further evidence to the contrary than what you are seeing from all of these Red Sox fans in this film and films like it about this particular team. We saw the power of baseball in the 2001 World Series as a healing mechanism and as something that did a great job of uniting the country at a time when the country desperately needed the escape and the moments of heroism. And we see it again here of you have a city that, you know, it had been 86 years on the baseball side. And yes, the city of Boston had those long Celtics runs in the NBA. And they're in the midst of a nice stretch with Tom Brady and the New England Patriots. And there's been Stanley Cup victories in there. But the one exception to the rule has been the Red Sox. And we've talked about the coming up just short so many times. And it's one of those that unless you're part of a fan base like the Red Sox, it's hard to understand 
unless you're a fan of a team that has also experienced a lot of heartbreak. And so myself personally, like I was legitimately thrilled for Red Sox fans. They've waited a long time and you have sons that were happy that their fathers got to be able to see this and fathers that kept their sons awake to be able to see something that they never thought they'd be able to get to see and the adornment of grave sites for those who didn't get to see it happen in person and thinking about that and you know this is a theme that's going to come up again in future series but you're absolutely right of like baseball is clearly more than just a game Nike did a really cool thing during the first commercial break after the World Series. I remember seeing this when it happened. So Nike had a commercial where we see Fenway Park in 1919. We see a family of four. It's a mother, a father, and two boys. And then we see the boys grow up over the next 86 years where their parents pass on, but they get married and they have their own families. And we see them as old men in 2004. And I know for a fact that a lot of Red Sox fans broke into tears as they saw that because they were probably thinking about all their loved ones who lived full, complete lives and they never got a chance to see it. Yeah, no, I mean, it was a phenomenal piece of advertising by Nike. And I don't know how long that would have been something they had sitting, waiting. I'm sure once they made the World Series, it was probably at a minimum in the works, just given the amount of time that it takes. While the concept may have been there, I don't know, like to some degree, they still have to film all of this and edit everything and get all the finishing touches put together all to be able to send stuff over to Fox and be like, hey, we want this to run following the final out going into the first commercial break following that and just chef's kiss. And then, of course, the World Series film ends with the credits playing Tessie by the Dropkick Murphys. And every time I hear that song, my mind immediately reverts to memories of playing MVP Baseball 2005, even though it is a Red Sox-centric song with Johnny Damon and Bronson Royal and others providing backing vocals. And it was my introduction to the Dropkick Murphys, whom I have had the pleasure of knowing as a band ever since then. And they're a pretty damn good band at that, but that was the thing that popped into my mind. Oh, I remember was why do you consider the best baseball video game ever made? I don't think I played MVP Baseball 2005, but I heard the opening to the song and I was initially going, it's like, wait a second, is this Dropkick Murphys go down into the YouTube description a little bit? And yep, sure enough. And it is credited in the credits of the World Series film of Tessie by Dropkick Murphys and agreed, phenomenal band, well done, MLB Productions. And we have to mention a couple more pop culture moments related to this particular World Series. Uh, the first one is the obvious one, Fever Pitch, the movie with Drew Barrymore and Jimmy Fallon that came out the following spring. The story was supposed to end like any other Red Sox season in heartbreak, but they happened to be filming this as this run was taking place. And the Fairley brothers obviously were like, you know what, we can't ignore this. This is too big for us to ignore. And people are going to be pissed if we end this with the season ending in heartbreak. So what do they do? They rewrite the ending to include the Red Sox victory. And I remember seeing on Fox Drew Barrymore and Jimmy Fallon running onto the field, celebrating and kissing as their characters 
And I remember thinking, you know, Jimmy Fallon was playing a Red Sox fan when he was on Saturday Night Live, but I don't quite know what this is. And then, of course, over time, we find out what is going on. I did see the movie months later in theaters, and maybe it's not the best movie, but I can tell you for a fact that when I was first dating my wife, I showed her this movie to say, look, if you want to be in a relationship with me, this is a preview of how it's going to go. And she's obviously stuck with me. And I am grateful for that. But still, it's just so cool that a piece of history was actually filmed as this movie was being made. I feel like it was fate in a way that you're filming about a Red Sox fan and the initial plan being failure. And then, of course, as you're doing that, the Red Sox finally happen to do the thing and you have to rewrite everything. And everything ends up working out okay. And then the last thing I want to mention is the TV show Lost, a favorite program of mine and the absolute favorite of all time for our mutual friend Justin Zipser. Shout out to Justin for that. There is an episode during the first season where, in a flashback clip, one of the characters ends up talking to the father of the main character, but he and the main character don't know each other yet at that point because their plane hasn't crashed. But he happens to run into the character's father at a bar. And this father has put everything in the hands of fate. He doesn't try to change anything himself. He just focuses on fate's deciding things. And he says that's why the Red Sox will never win the damn series. And apparently this is something that his father used to say. And I will say that this episode was put into production after the Red Sox World Series victory. So it's not like they were prophesizing anything. But a couple of seasons later, when the main character is held by someone else on the island, he says that we have connections to the outside world. And the Red Sox won the World Series. And the character is like, couldn't you have picked a different team? And his captor is like, no, they were down 3 nothing to the Yankees in the LCS, and then they won eight straight, and he still doesn't believe him. And he just so happens to have the tape of the final out ready to go, and that is what convinces him that, okay, these people are legitimate, and that they do have connections to the outside world. So this was a very big thing in pop culture, not just in baseball, because everybody for months and even beyond the year after, they were talking about this broken curse of the Bambino. It's one of the enduring kind of legacy stories in what has been the national pastime. And so just, you know, a lot of people were aware of the significance of it. And naturally this makes for, like we said at the outset, as far as an overall series goes, not particularly compelling. In terms of the actual storyline, though, of a team fighting to finally break through, that was the compelling part. And that certainly lived up to the hype. And it is something that will live on as the baseball story continues this year and years, if not decades from now. In fact, it will be decades from now. So there is one American League team that has a slightly longer World Series drought than the Red Sox, and they will be in our 2005 episode and I guess you could say that everything that we have been working towards, at least from my perspective, has been leading up to this. And Lucas, I will say now that you might have to motivate me to continue with the podcast after next week's episode. 
Yeah, you know what? That might be a fair point. But it's gone just beyond this episode of we have had throughout the past, you know, you and I have been doing this for all intents and purposes two years now. We started this project. And throughout various episodes, we have had little nuggets and teasers and things like that all pointing towards what's coming up next week. We have something special planned. So you better tune in next week to find out what happens. I will personally hunt down anyone who's been listening to this podcast so far and does not listen to this particular episode. And I promise you, I will make good on that threat. So for Lucas Mitzel, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thanks for listening to our 2004 episode of Then There Were Two, A History of the World series. Or from my perspective, the prequel to the 2005 episode of Then There Were Two, A History of the World series. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on what is still Twitter in our world. Subscribe. We will see you next time. And again, you do not want to miss this.